All right. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining Solar Tech Talk. Uh, my name is Kate Collardson, and with me is Aaron Bingham, and we are product managers here at Baywa RE Solar Systems. How you doing, Aaron? Doing great, Kate. I, uh, I hear you have some big news. I do have some big news. It's bittersweet news. I'm, I'm sad to say that this is my last solar tech talk. I am going to be moving on from Baywa and will no longer be a, a regular co-host on this show. And I'm, and I'm sad to go. Uh, this has been a really fun show that we've had together here uh, for the last year. And I, I hope that maybe I can come back as, uh, as a guest uh, someday. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely hope we get to do a reunion episode. And I'm really sad to be saying goodbye um, as well. I'm super excited for you and uh, what comes next. And I'm sure our paths will be crossing regularly. So um, we'll certainly have you back on to catch up with you and hopefully get the latest on what's going on in the world of solar recycling and uh, system, system O&M. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for saying that, Aaron. And, and actually, on that note, I do have some news in, in solar recycling. I'm excited to announce the launch of our uh, a website called solarrecycle.org. Um, we'll have a link to that website in our show notes. Solarrecycle.org is uh, the result of a few volunteers who have uh, been working to get more information out to our industry about recycling solar equipment. It's, um, it's an informational website. There are a few maps there. There's a map that shows you um, different recyclers around the country. We we just uh, added some information about policy uh, at, in different states. We have places where folks can donate used equipment and uh, and more information. More is coming. So I, I hope that everyone will jump over to solarrecycle.org and check it out. Use it as a resource going forward. When you have equipment that needs to be recycled, there's a we've got some great information there. Yeah, and absolutely reach out to Solar Recycle via their website or, um, you know, contact your Baywa sales rep if you have questions about how to um, recycle modules that you have right now and are, are looking for a home for. That's exactly right. I didn't mention, I, I think maybe we've mentioned it in a previous episode, but uh, we do have a solar recycling program uh, here at Baywa. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because that is a great way for our customers to, to recycle the, their end of life equipment. We have a, a discount with Cascade Eco Minerals. They are, they're offering that discount to our customers. And so please do reach out to your sales rep to find out more information. So any articles that uh, that have jumped out at you since the last time we've spoken that you want to bring up? Yeah, definitely. There has been so much happening in the renewable industry world. I'm sure that everyone is aware of, you know, all of the different trade actions and, you know, some of the other um, challenges that the market's facing more widely Everyone is having trouble with logistical challenges these days. But there was an, uh, an article or a couple of articles that came out based on a white paper that was published by um, Longji, J.A., and Jinko. So the white paper basically reviews you know, some findings from these three companies that seem to point to an, a, a kind of a, a, an ideal or agreed upon 
set of dimensions for modules that are made with M10 cells. Those are cells that are made with 182 millimeter wafers. There aren't a lot of M10 cells on the market right now, but they are going to be, you know, making up an increasing portion of the module availability that we see in the distribution channel and kind of more widely. And so it's interesting to see the direction that those three heavy hitter uh, manufacturers are going in terms of trying to standardize module production size when made with those cells. So there's a Solar Builder article by um, Chris Crowell. Folks listening can learn more about efforts to standardize module size for modules made with M10 cells. Well, that's a, a great segue to the rest of our show. We are talking today about module sizes, my, the, the, the trends in our, that we've been seeing in the industry toward larger modules, larger cells. So let's, uh, let's jump in. The first conversation that we have is with LG Electronics. Let's hop over to that chat. Hey, today we're here with Brian Lynch, Sarah Gaddis, and Helga Canfield from LG Electronics. They're here to tell us a little bit more about what the LG team is seeing with the solar market more broadly, and specifically with module size and module technology. Brian, Sarah, Helga, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Hey, Sarah. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Could we, before we get going, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, each of you and what you do there at LG Electronics. If you could just give us a little um, intro. Uh, Brian, we'll start with you. Yeah, no problem. So I'm Brian Lynch. I am the sales director and business development director for the energy business of LG Electronics. I've been with the company for just about three years, uh, have about 15 years of solar experience prior to LG. So I do everything from coordinating the sales team to coordinate policy efforts, as well as think about what the next step will be for this whole industry and LG's uh, participation in those next steps. Great. Thank you. Uh, Sarah. Uh, sure. So I'm the regional sales manager for the Northeast, which is New Jersey to Maine. Um, and my job is to be mostly installer facing and speaking to them about the product lineup, what's coming, what's going, and just generally what's going on in the market. I am almost at my five-year anniversary at LG. So quite the, quite the tenure. Almost congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Helga. Hi, um, I am on the same team as Sarah is. I cover um, dollars, uh, make sure they're up to speed on, on what we're coming out with. And uh, I coordinate with our CAM team uh, to make sure that our distributors have the right inventory. Uh, I cover Southern California and Arizona and Nevada. And I've been at LG for three years and been in the industry for a while. I've worked for distributors, inverter manufacturers, and now, like I said, I'm been at LG for three years. So this episode is, uh, we're, we're talking about trends in module manufacturing. And so we'd like to hear from your perspective, what kind of trends are you seeing uh, in, in the manufacturing of modules? Brian, <laughs> um, what kind of trends are you seeing? All right. I, I think the, the, the current trend that's quite obvious for everybody is larger, uh, larger format, larger DC capacity, just physically bigger. We saw that really with the proliferation of the 66 cell format for residential applications uh, that was really pioneered, it was say two or three years ago, and has now worked its way through pretty much every major module manufacturer, LG included. So 2021 saw the launch of the 66 cell back contact platform. So now we have a residential module that goes up to 440 watts. Uh, and then we just recently unveiled our H plus, which is a half cut cell module in a 66 cell. If you're uh, an old school solar person, I still speak in full cell cell counts. 
It's actually 132 cells, uh, and that one goes up to a 405 watt that's, that's all black. But they're physically larger modules, so they're not more efficient than their traditional 60 cell counterparts. Um, on the commercial industrial side, what we're seeing is larger wafers. So larger wafers, if you think about this as a, as a vertical uh, supply chain, which a lot of respects it is, wafer comes before cell. So larger wafers create larger cells, larger cells create larger modules. And this is how you're seeing some of the, the major Chinese companies coming out with these 600-watt behemoths. Again, don't be fooled. They're not necessarily more efficient modules. They're just physically larger, which comes with a lot of advantages and disadvantages. And it's important for everyone in the industry to really weigh uh, what those advantages and disadvantages are. Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting that for probably close to 15 years, I feel like the size of a solar wafer didn't really change very much. And then we saw the, the size kind of increase steadily over the last couple of years. Can you speak to that change a little bit? Do you, what, what do you know about what's going on with that part of the supply chain that's kind of driving up the um, size of the wafers that we're seeing? Well, uh, to talk about that side of the supply chain, you should probably put some circus music behind this. But a basic truism <laughs> of any manufacturing operation is that to use our Huntsville, Alabama factory as, a, as kind of a proxy, there's a fixed amount of units we can make on those lines. Use, use an arbitrary number because it's round. If we can make 100,000 units, then because as an industry, we price on a dollar per watt basis, it's advantageous for us to make a larger module because if we can change the nameplate capacity from 550 megawatts versus 500 megawatts, and all we've done is made the same number of units but made higher wattage units, what that does is that displaces the fixed cost. So the, the, the debt for the facility, the labor costs, all those fixed costs in factories now get spread out over a higher number of watts. And so it actually uh, lowers your cost basis a little bit. So if you have higher input costs, you have more frames, more cells, that is offset by your lower, lower overhead. And that simple formula works throughout the value chain. And so wafer manufacturers, cell manufacturers, and now module manufacturers are all incentivized to drive these larger platforms because it lowers cost. Everyone in the industry wants lower costs, and so this is a way to do it. But now it's coming at the risk of moving away from a, a module platform that maybe is not ideal for all installers. The reason why I made a comment about the, the circus music, and, and it's very important for everyone to understand this, is there's a lot of changes happening in the upstream polysilicon wafer supply chain. So uh, China controls 99% of ingot capacity, which is a step before wafer, and at 95% of wafer capacity by most analyst reports. Uh, with all of the issues related to trade and forced labor concerns in China, what that's doing is it's causing a lot of downstream buyers or seller module manufacturers that are serving the U.S. market to now shift their sourcing strategy to the upstream side. So what this is doing is causing a giant shuffling of the deck of who is sourcing what from whom. So LG, who has never worked with a company that's based in Xinjiang, we're now seeing a lot of our competitors trying to source the same raw material that we are because they're trying to create assurances that they can ship their product into the U.S. And so there is a lot of uh, challenges in the upstream side that is manifesting itself in significant cost increases. 60 cell versus 66 cell uh, modules. Can you can you talk a little bit about the technical pros and cons? I, I get that there's a financial pro, but are there other than just more watts on the roof? Is there is there more to it? I'll let Sarah Helga take the lead on answering this a few of them. So as far as the 60 versus 66 cell, I, I thought it was um, humorous when one of our competitors launched sort of the first 66 cell module a couple of years ago and tried to position it as a next generation technology when it's really just a bigger module. And so I think 
um, for us at LG, we sort of see that it, it's almost another tool in the tool belt. And for some roofs, a 66 cell does make sense, but for some it doesn't. And you can put more on the roof with a 60 cell. So we, we like to have both options available so that really the installer can use whatever makes most sense for them at any given time on any given roof. But as Brian alluded to earlier, it's really same efficiency, just taller. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as we look at 60 versus 66 cell, I think geographically, you're going to see some differences. Uh, my territory in the Southwest and Vegas, Phoenix, we tend to have pretty unlimited roof space. Yes, I, I do think a lot of those guys are starting to gravitate towards 66 cell, but there are going to be areas, you know, downtown San Diego where the houses are smaller, where they'll, you know, prefer to lead with a 60 cell module. I think there are cases where the homeowner gets hung up on thinking that a 400 watt is better than a 380 watt. And I, I'm seeing that installers sometimes have a hard time convincing the homeowner. Um, I had an interaction with an installer a couple weeks ago where they were asked by a homeowner to provide a quote and the, the uh, they had received a quote from a, another installer already. And that installer had quoted with LG with a larger, you know, 60 cell format. And he came in with with our 60 cell 380. Uh, so they're both LG, they're the same. And he could show to the homeowner that with 380s, he could actually provide a larger array, more KW, higher bill offset. And he was coming in $1,000 lower uh, compared to the bid with the 66 cell LG auction. And the homeowner still went with, you know, the 400 watt module because in their mind, it is just a better module. So I think there are some installers who are more successful as, as being able to, you know, show that, hey, it's actually not better. It's just they made it bigger. But there are homeowners you just get really hung up on 400 plus is better than a 380 and, and you just can't reason with them. They're even willing to pay more for it. So so I think you're going to see some geographic differences, you know, as far as adoption of 66L versus 60 goes. So just to add on to that, we're, we've been hearing from some installers that they feel like they're getting less time with the homeowners um, in, in times of COVID. So they're having to get to a lot of information faster. And for some of them, it's just like to have to explain why a 380 may or may not be better than a 400. It, it's like almost something that they don't want to like deal with. And yeah, they, it's an additional know, hurdle to getting to that sale, right? Yeah. So now that they're not actually sitting at the kitchen table, they really, they're trying to get as much information out, but not too much and as fast as possible. So it's a very confusing time. <laughs> So three years ago, SPI, only actually had an in-person SPI. We had a 66-cell module hanging in one of our meeting rooms, so it wasn't visible on the show floor. But people that came in for a meeting with LG, we'd, we'd ask them, so what do you think about this uh, module format? And I think 100% of the people we talked to said, don't do it. We don't like the 66-cell. We're not going to fall into that trap. 60-cell offers greater design flexibility, this greater standardization on BOS, easier for the crews to lift, and for regions or installers that cover multiple regions that have different seismic or wind or like snow load requirements, 60-cell is just a known quantity. And we took that feedback to heart, and we watched those exact same installers move to other platforms that were 66-cell citing they had a higher DC wattage capacity. And so we moved to the 66L platform on two of our modules now. And I can tell you that specifically on the back contact where we were offering a 60L alongside a 66L with a couple exceptions, oh, the vast majority of those installers that were on the back contact platform, the Neon R, migrated over the 66L almost overnight. It, it was astounding how fast that they went. So I think from an installer standpoint, everyone understands the disadvantages and the complexities of using it. It, it was really situation dependent, in my opinion, based 
based on the roof and the requirements of the roof, uh, but where 66L offers more DC watts to sell, because that is how we sell in this industry, it does offer some distinct advantages once you incorporate it into your installation platform. Uh, and very few people go back to 60L once the 66L is, is in their portfolio. Can I jump in with one more question on this topic? Um, can you talk about the, the implications to other system components, racks, inverters? What are these size changes? How do they affect the, the rest of the, the system? Helga, would you like to say a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, I can kind of share an anecdote to where, um, you know, I had an installer who was doing uh, the 60L380 and they, you know, it's, again, it's a personal preference, what DC to AC, you know, ratio you're comfortable with. But, you know, they had switched to the IQ7A with unfazed already. And so, you know, they're like, I'm already paying for the larger inverter. I'd like to pair it with a larger wattage um, LG option. So they did the math and their average system size is, is fairly large. It's 9.5 kW. It's, the, again, in the Southwest. And, uh, you know, they did the math and like, well, I can actually eliminate two inverters you know, the rail for two inverters and two modules. So so they, they made the switch just based on that. Again, you know, the inverter choice will, for some people, will also drive it. For others, that's exactly the reason why they want to stay with the 60 cell because they want to hang on to that IQ7 Plus, for example. So again, you're, I think you're going to see both. As long as we offer both, I think we'll have uptakers in, in both sides, in my opinion. I think one thing that installers are concerned about, and I think it is a valid point, is warranty. You know, 25 years is a long time. If we keep changing dimensions as an industry, you know, how, how does that work for future warranty cases, right? I, and I think there is definitely some, some truth to that concern that they have. Yeah. And that'll kind of bear out over time, right? This is just kind of a side question. I, I know that we've gotten feedback from our, one of our racking manufacturing partners that modules will change to a different size and the, the racking manufacturing partner will, you know, sometimes get questions from installers about the new module size being tested and certified with that racking solution. Are there processes in place that LG follows when they're releasing a, a new module size, like going to the 66 cell to ensure that it can, the modules can be paired with you know all of the most prevalent racking solutions? Yeah, we have a field application engineer that sends out samples and, and that's how we coordinate. At times, you know, we forgot a brand because there are, you know, it has proliferated a little bit. So there are some brands that sometimes have caught us off guard, but I, I'm sure from the racking manufacturer's perspective, it's annoying because you know, I, I think the changes aren't done. There, there might be even different formats in the future, right? 54 cell, 52 cell, I've heard all kinds of numbers. So I, it's probably maddening for them. And, and I'm sure it's driving up their cost because they have to go through the testing every single time. So yeah, I'm sure they, they would welcome standardization even within, within the larger format. And Aaron, to directly answer your question, when we implement a new frame format, whether we're changing the flange, the depth of the frame, or the dimensions of the module, uh, it is part of that new product introduction process that we provide the frame sets to the major uh, racking manufacturing cohorts. And again, as, as Helga mentioned, there might be one installer that's using one niche one. We're happy to work with anybody. Uh, but at this point, we, we get good coverage with our NPI process, and we're happy to work with any other manufacturer um, for unique applications as they come up. Excellent. Okay. And Sarah, was there anything that you wanted to add there? 
it was kind of on the prior question about the implications for the rest of the system, and especially as it relates to inverter pairing. Specifically, it, it does seem most often to impact installers that use Enphase um, more so than SolarEdge as far as the pairings go. And in certain markets, um, so here in the Northeast, for example, in Massachusetts, there's a net metering cap of 10 kW AC. So installers are really motivated to put as much DC onto the AC as possible. So it's really once you kind of tip that certain threshold, you actually get a much smaller system on the roof because they're, they're, they're going to try to keep the AC. Because if they're forced to go up to like the 7A, for example, they end up not being able to put as much DC on the roof. So there's implications there. And also um, kind of going back to the supply chain issues, uh, we definitely noticed with the launch, we're actually having to speak with distribution to make sure they're carrying enough inverters to get us through these transitions. So if there's supply challenges with certain inverters, a distributor actually is like, they have to make sure that they know they're going to sell this much of the new 66L back contact. And are they going to have enough phase? Are they going to have enough solar edge to be able to support that, that shift? So we're having to ha actively have those conversations at the same time. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like a really important point for folks to keep in mind as they're managing any of these kinds of transitions amongst their team and their, their buying, right? You will have to make sure that you've got the right microinverters or right optimizers to pair with the higher power modules that are in, in some of these new layouts. So really, really important just to double check those aspects of your transition plan to make sure that you don't hit any, any hurdles there. So we've talked a little bit about some changes that are coming to the module space in terms of module size. Let's talk a little bit about some other technologies that we're seeing and what some of the implications are. And I believe Sarah may have hinted at it, or maybe, was it Helga? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's still a trend to go beyond, you know, pushing the, the wafers to M10, M12, and mm -hmm. then you're going to have to play with dimensions again. So uh I, I think the way for manufacturers are gonna gonna force that ultimately. I, I don't think it's necessarily a play for twenty two as much, but beyond that I I think we should count on maybe dimensions changing again. Dimensions changing again, potentially looking at larger wafers even still and maybe <laughs> smaller cell counts as the wafer size goes up just to try to keep the module yeah. manageable. I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about any changes that LG is looking at in the near future in terms of new product lines that are on offer for customers. Yeah, it's a great question and, and probably top of mind. I mean, LG is never bashful about implementing new products. I think to everyone's kind of mental anguish. In 2021, we did a SKU count. We had over 60 different SKUs that were on three different platforms. And we acknowledge that that is broadly disruptive to everybody's business, uh, Baywell's business, our installer partner's business, and our business too. It, it breeds inefficiencies. Uh, we do that because LG commands a premium, not only because of a great brand and great uh, performance characteristics, but also because we're always near the top of module efficiency. And so there's a constant drive internally to our R&D to always offer the best uh, or to be the best. With that being said, though, 2022 will be remarkably different due to all those upstream supply chain challenges that I referenced uh, on the prior question. The name of the game for us, and, and we think the entire industry in 2022 is operational certainty. So the, the harsh reality, and I don't think many people are aware of this, is the cost to make a solar module over the course of 2021 20, has increased about 40%. And the cost to ship that module is up over 300%. And we didn't pass along price increases because the market simply couldn't absorb it. And so we really have to focus to contain costs going forward. While the supply chain upstream of us continues its musical chairs, again, we're just going to stay 
locked and loaded on really offering what we think is a best-in-market portfolio that offers a wide variety of solutions for good, better, best, 60 and 66 cell, half-cut, full full cell modules, and let the market choose out of that portfolio and really, again, bank on the operational certainty that partnering with LG will, will provide in a year that will probably be broadly disruptive to most folks, uh, whether or not they're aware of what's going to play out here. So as you mentioned earlier, LG recently announced the Neon H Plus residential module. This is a a new module format, new cell layout. What can you tell our uh, listeners and viewers about it? Yeah, so the H Plus is our first residential half-cut module, and it's what we call a paved technology. So the cells actually, there's no gap between the cells, which makes it a little bit more energy dense, a little bit more efficient. And... It has a greater aesthetic because you don't have the gaps. Even on an all-black module with a black back sheet, there is still uh, color variability between the cell itself and the back sheet. When you abut the cells right up next to each other, you minimize those gaps. You have a much more uniform appearance. There are other manufacturers that have similar high aesthetic modules. What you now get with LG is you don't have to trade off on a high efficiency, high performance, great warranty, now in a beautiful module. I think also our modules are beautiful. Uh, but this one in particular is designed for that really high design aesthetic that wants that uniform black appearance. And I don't really want to see the solar module itself. So, uh, Sarah, can you talk about how these these are being received by the market? Are folks excited about them? Yeah, in the Northeast, um, I would say people are generally excited and kind of, as I mentioned before, like another arrow in the quiver of doing the good, better, best, right? And it, it makes sense for some roofs. Um, and in the Northeast, we do tend to have smaller rooftops. And so um, a 66L doesn't always work for folks, but if it does, um, it, people are very excited about it. Also, what I was mentioning before about in particular Massachusetts and Rhode Island uh, with the net metering cap, the new H plus pairs with the N phase seven plus so that you can really put a lot lot more DC on the roof um, if you're an Enphase installer in those markets. So um, those folks in particular are very excited. Can we talk a little bit about half-cut cells and why the market has moved toward half-cut versus full cell technology? What um, is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, half-cuts offer some inherent electrical advantages, right? The smaller the cell, the less resistance to take the current out of the cell. Uh, There's an extra processing step. You also introduce the opportunity for a stress in the cells. So if you ever touched a cell, uh, we'd welcome everyone down to our Huntsville factory post-pandemic, whenever that might actually happen. If you touch a cell, it's very brittle. It's, it's about as, as thick as a human hair. And when you insert the bus bar into the cell, it's a process called tapping. And so the more time you have, the higher stress you put on. And so earlier adopters of that half-cut technology didn't make their cells a little bit thicker to account for the increased stress, which is why some people might have experienced increased degradation rates with the original half-cut cell modules. I think personally, as not an engineer, uh, the industry has simply learned these lessons because they've been out now for three or four years. Half-cut themselves is not that innovative. And so we really, from a manufacturing and quality standpoint, have figured this out that we can make a durable half-cut cell and module that will uh, have high performance characteristics for, for 25 years. Tell, tell us about the back contact technology. What's uh, the advantage there? From- so, well, yeah, so the name back, back contact, you know, explains that, right? There's no contacts on the front of the cell. So you're completely optimizing uh, for power generation on the front end of the cell. In our case, it's a higher efficiency cell as well better degradation, better temperature uh, performance. So it gives you, it's, it's truly our best option and it's really the best module on the market uh, for all those reasons. 
I talk to installers all the time who tell me that a key reason why some homeowners don't adopt solar is because they understand that the efficiencies and the technology is always getting better and the costs are coming down. And so there's this idea of if I wait till the next year, I'll get something that much better, that that's, that, that is that much cheaper. And back content really answers that because we pitch the back content as being tomorrow's technology today. It's the best efficiency, best wattage from a DC capacity basis, best warranty, and best design aesthetic. Uh, the, the back contact module really is that premium product that for the right consumer that really has a high-end home, if you have a high-end car, that's their purchase motivator and the back contact solves that for them. Yeah, you get best-in-class performance, best-in-class power production, extremely energy-dense. So it's no wonder that it's kind of been been the market leader for, for years at this point and I think well-positioned to stay there. Okay. We're talking about best in class. This is not a technology question, but I'd love to give y'all a chance to talk about the warranty. So the LG warranty is what we uh, call internally is the, the triple 25. So that's product performance and labor. So the performance is really, you know, both, or should say all of our modules now, all, all three of them, the two, the H plus and the R have um, performance guarantees over 90% after 25 years. And then we also have a labor warranty of up to $450 per Per case um, were there to be some sort of failure sometime here in the future. Um, an important thing about the LG warranty is it does travel with the module. So I know that homeowners ask that question all the time is, you know, well, this is all well and good today, but what if Sarah Solar Company isn't in business five years from now, then what? So it's great because there's some future installer that maybe doesn't even exist today that would be compensated to go back out and, you know, fix any issues were there to be one. So we really feel like we kind of have the best warranty in the market. And another thing that we don't ask, unlike actually, I think almost all LG products, if you want to get the warranty, you have to register it. Um, With our solar modules, we don't ask anyone to register the modules. We know that they are ours. We know from the serial number when we made them. Um, So there's none of that sort of rigor mole for the installer as they're, as they're putting the modules on the roof. They've, they've got enough to do at that point. So um, that's another perk for the installer. I just want to say that I uh, believe in the longevity of Sarah's solar company. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We're going to be great. <laughs> One of the interesting things on the warranty is, is we did a, a survey with Harris Poll in 2020, actually like mid-pandemic, because we really wanted to be super efficient with our marketing dollars as they were being trimmed last year. And we asked homeowners who had recently adopted solar in, the, in the, like prior two years, the reasons why they chose the technology they did. Cost was not number one, by the way. It was actually efficiency was number one. Cost was number four. Uh, warranty was like five or six. And then when we surveyed uh, potential solar customers, so people that had said that they were considering going solar sometime in the next two years, but they hadn't yet pulled the trigger on a contract, uh, we did A-B testing with different proposals. And so we made uh, a, a couple of different variations of it, uh, but we took we made one that was unbranded, so, so no no solar brand on top of it. And all of the performance characteristics were identical with the exception of the warranty structure. And we tested the price tolerance for the consumer when presented this difference. The warranty was the highest value component they're willing to pay a premium for. And so this is something that was a key takeaway for us. We're so focused on cost in this industry, as we rightly should be, but homeowners are viewing this as an investment, an investment in their home, an investment in the future. And so they really want to understand that the product that they're investing in will be around for 25 years. So we created a tool. Every LG Pro has access to it. If they've signed up for a partner portal, which is free to do, it's, it's pretty simple. And there's a warranty calculator on there. So we know we charge a premium relative to most other solar manufacturers. But when you quantify our warranty structure, it's really astounding how much value is created because, hey, a 0.3% degradation rate relative to a 0.55% degradation rate, fractions of a percent, it doesn't really matter. But over 25 years, it does. It's a whole 
compound interest exercise. And what we've done is we've made it super simple. So you put in the key inputs into the warranty calculator, click a button, you can do it right in front of the homeowner and it pops out the value, the guaranteed value of the LG performance relative to a competitor. And now your cost objections fly out the door because I've yet to see a scenario where the premium for the LG module can't be 100% offset just purely by the guaranteed warranty performance. And it's backed by arguably one of the strongest balance sheets in the industry because we don't hold our warranty in a solar only uh, entity. The same counterparty that's that's guaranteeing TVs and dishwashers and uh, dryers is going to be the same warranty counterparty for the solar modules. Yeah. So you have that kind of behemoth financial backing to ensure that whenever a warranty does arise, there's going to be someone picking up the phone and you know for sure that that, that 25-25 guarantee is going to be there. Um, triple 25, Aaron. You got one more 25. Triple 25. Triple 25. <laughs> yeah. And that, that warranty calculator tool is so fantastic. It's, it's a relatively simple tool, right? Um, especially to use. It's very easy to use, but it, it gives a really, really easy to understand visualization that just puts it right in front of any, any person that's considering a system for themselves. You know, this is the value that you get by having LG's industry leading warranty. Helga, what, what would you like to say about the warranty and I just want to add a, a couple of things. So one one thing we also offer we haven't discussed today is our AC module. One of the attractive features to homeowners is that it comes with a triple 25 year warranty, uh, including labor on the inverter, right? Because we make the inverter as well. Uh, whereas with other brands, you know, you're looking at two years, maybe five years labor if you buy the extension. Uh, but thus it's 25 years all the way around. And, and that really connects with homeowners. They, they see the value in that. So I just wanted to mention that. And then secondly, there is at the homeowner level, they often get flashed a spec sheet and they see the word 25. So they think they're covered. They don't fully understand that they should be looking at all three aspects of a warranty. From their perspective, they just think they're covered. So it's those installers who really kind of take the homeowner through, okay, you need to look at all three parts that make up that warranty. Uh, we have a nice piece available. You can co-brand it in the LG Pro portal that explains that uh, for a homeowner to make sure that they look at what they're getting with the other proposals. They're truly getting their warranty covered. They think they see the word 25 and they think they're covered. And you need to kind of take them through the details to show what they need to look for in the warranty. All warranties are definitely not equal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It can be difficult, but it's really important for folks who are trying to make these decisions about what type of system they want on the roof for the next 25 years um, to understand what the opportunity cost is of going, you know, with uh, maybe the cheapest module as opposed to the module that you know for sure will be either on your roof operating or you'll be compensated for it in some way, right? It's it's certainly something that is easy to forget about when folks are going through the process of looking at different quotes and trying to make that important decision. But anything that an installer can do to really illustrate the value of the warranty, the value of the brands, the, the difference between this warranty and that warranty is, is super helpful. So it sounds like these resources are available to folks that become an LG Pro installer and yeah. they can access them through the LG Pro portal. Can y'all tell us a little bit just real quickly about that process? How does it work? How can folks quickly become LG Pro installers or, or learn what they need to do in order to get there? 
So you could do what I do uh, most of the time when somebody, when I'm talking to someone, I just Google LG Pro Solar. <laughs> I literally Google it every time. I haven't even bookmarked it and it's right there at the top. And that's the website. And it's like new to LG Pro, sign up here. It's right at the top. Enter your information um, that gets sent over to our team. We, we verify that you're an actual company and solar installer. Um, and that kind of kicks off the whole process. It's, it's very straightforward and simple. Just keeping it simple. so it's self-service that the whole system is automated. But Aaron, I take it a step further and have the contractor reach out to their Baywa rep, organize a call with the LG rep, because we have a whole team that's here to support our installer partners. And we do know that a lot of people don't access these resources. There's a ton of great stuff in there. So we can do a call individualized. We can set you up on the portal as we're talking. We can give you a tour of it. And then we can even do a training so the sales teams can learn how to use the, the sales uh, material. Real quick on the whole warranty and the Harris Poll, know your customer, right? It's sales training 101. Uh, through Harris Poll, we learned that 70% of solar and tenders will pay a premium for a better performing system in the long run. 30% just want the lowest cost up front. Through validation questions, you can figure out pretty quickly who the, the customer is that you're talking to. Um, you can also use the warranty as a as a way to, to fight price objections. I talked to Helga Solar. Sarah Solar, you're, you're $3,000 more expensive. I want you to match Helga Solar's price. Sarah Solar can say, I understand that you want the best price, but I'm offering you the greatest value. And so if you want me to install a module that doesn't have these performance characteristics, these warranty characteristics, you're going to lose $6,000 in performance in the long run. Is that what you want? And most rational consumers, when presented with that option, are going to say no. As as buyers, especially buyers of things we don't fully understand, it's always, okay, I need to take 10% cost out of this. I'm going to negotiate. Well, if you present to your customer that there's a clear consequence of going to a lower cost component, then you immediately squash that objection. I highly recommend Sarah Solar over Helga Solar. <laughs> I like that. A little I like favoritism that. here. <laughs> five years, five years. <laughs> the New York team is kind of ganging up there. That's not fair. <laughs> That's right. We have to. <laughs> it's okay. So... Are there any other points that we want to make sure we touch on before we're done? We have about five minutes left. And yeah, so I'll just tease, uh, you know, we talked a little about the product roadmap for next year. And I mentioned it's all going to be about operational certainty. And you really won't see dramatic skew changes from LG. You might see a, a back contact module maybe jump up five or 10 watts. But we're really trying to dial in on a limited number of SKUs and just execute flawlessly on that. That doesn't mean that we're pumping the brakes on innovation. And so a lot of the innovation you'll see, on, like on the AC module platform, you'll see improved software. Uh, that's been one of our biggest nits. Uh, we are actively working on updated apps. You might also see starting connections of a smart home. And so LG can generate electricity through our solar panels. Uh, now with our Sense partnership, you're starting to see some integration and device uh, recognition that will evolve into device controlling consumer preferences. There's some integration work being done with the EV charger that will be announced here shortly. And then the missing component is energy storage. So our sister company, LG Energy Solutions, formerly known as LG Chem, uh, they are a sister company. We are not the same company. You know, They solve the gap today for energy storage, but trust that LG Electronics is working tirelessly to develop and bring to market a best-in-class energy storage product. And we hope that that product will be announced here uh, in the upcoming months or quarter. So, so stay tuned. That's very exciting. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what, what y'all are doing in that space. And it's really exciting to know that LG really is looking at this sector as one where uh, smart energy management and kind of more control at the residential level is something that you want to be, you know, making sure that your customers have access to through your platforms. So one day. Yeah. And one other important thing, Aaron, is the cost to make solar, pro solar modules, inverters, racking, the labor installed is all going up. 
right? As, as an industry, we've always watched the cost go down. 2022 will be the year that they're actually going to go up a little bit. Mm. There's a big area that all of us can work tirelessly to take a lot of cost out, and that's customer acquisition. Customer acquisition is extremely inefficient in solar. And so also trust that LG is leaning in on our concierge platform. This is a service we offer LG Pro members where we hand them deals that uh, are based on their pricing on a non-negotiated basis. That program has been going pretty well in, in certain markets. In earlier markets, it, it's, it's not as successful, but California Northeast, it's been going quite well. We're leaning in to continue to improve uh, customer acquisition efficiencies and in ways that are non-competitive with our installers. So you'll see a couple announcements here, uh, hopefully before the end of the year, that we're really going to be uh, doing some very innovative things in the customer acquisition space to really lower costs because unfortunately we can't control the component costs at the moment. Thanks, Brian, Helga, Sarah, for being here and, and talking through all of these technology changes, uh, what y'all have going on there at LG. We are excited to, to have you on the, the podcast and uh, we will check back in in the future to see what else is going on. Thanks for being here. Awesome. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Good to see y'all. Wow, it's always great to talk to the team over at LG and hear about you know all of the groundbreaking technology that they're working on implementing um, with their module production. Absolutely, that's a great team. Yeah, really exciting to hear about some of the coming changes and advancements, including the Neon R66 cell modules that are available basically right now, and then the Neon H Plus modules that are. Uh, going to be making use of some half-cut cell technology that will enable them to eke out a little bit more power in close to the same format as we're seeing with the with the Neon R, kind of that same 66 cell format. So it's exciting to see some of those changes. And, you know, I'm sure that installers are excited to be able to have conversations with homeowners about being able to offer some of the highest power modules on the market if they offer Neon R. So no, that, that was a great conversation with LG and I'm excited to hear what we uh, learned from from Silfab uh, Solar. So let's uh, let's hop over to that conversation next. We are here today with Ryan Adams. Ryan is the director of business development for Silfab, and he's here with us to talk about modules and module tech. So we're really excited to have you here. Ryan, can you just give us a, a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do there at Silfab? And yeah, I appreciate certainly uh, being given the opportunity to, to chat. Silfab, I mean, as a, as a module manufacturer and a small, lean, nimble one, uh, I get involved in, in almost anything from product development um, decisions through procurement decisions through the sales and the sales operations and the execution on the back end. So being a, a small, neat, nimble company, you end up ultimately being involved in kind of every step from, from development through uh, execution. What industry trends are, are you seeing in module manufacturing that our listeners and viewers should be aware of? I think that everyone's noticed, obviously, that uh, in the last six, 12 months, modules have gotten considerably larger due to either the cell size or, or the cell count within a, a given module. And uh, while one of, them, one of them is a decision of the module manufacturer, one of them is, is being determined uh, somewhat upstream by the, the wafer manufacturers, so well, maybe a year and a half ago, two years, uh, what was called M2 was a, a cell size um, that was very common in, in North American PV products. That cell had a lifespan of about 12 months and, and it was gone. And M3 then came in, which is slightly larger. Um, 
by 3%, I think, in, in total surface area. Uh, that is now basically on its way out. It probably has another maybe three or four months, five months to go. Uh, M, M4 is being used today. M6 is being introduced today. There's kind of a hybrid, which is an M8. Uh, and a lot have moved to M10. And really what a, a lot of the cell uh, size comes from the the ingot and the wafer manufacturers for them to process larger amounts of silicon or a larger ingot of silicon is the same amount for an M6 cell as it causes them to process a M2 cell or an M3 cell. So instead of getting uh, maybe 4.5 or 4.8 watts from a M2 cell, they can process uh, a wafer that's you know 5.5, 5.8 watts. Therefore, the efficiency of them processing that ingot uh, is is better and gets some higher wattage per per cost unit. Therefore, they push that downstream. Cell manufacturers make larger cells and, uh, you know, module manufacturers really go based on what availability is in the market and hence why the cell sizes continue to get bigger. The other one of using, moving from a 60 to a 66 cell is almost a, trying to play catch up a little bit. If you're not using a larger cell, using a larger cell requires changing the entire front end and and sometimes the back end of a manufacturing facility. Um, millions of dollars, two, three, four million dollars to upgrade a line or five or six million dollars to replace a line. Yeah. Uh, so adding a, a row of cells onto the end of your module, you achieve the same wattage class uh, without having to upgrade equipment and move to to that larger cell. So that's certainly been the biggest one that's really macro scale that's impacted, I think, almost every single manufacturer and hence every single installer on the uh, on the market today. It's really interesting. I mean, if, if you think back to the, the last you know, 15 years or so in the solar industry, wafer size and cell size have been a, a bit more constant, you know, change has been a lot less frequent. Do you have any thoughts about beyond just kind of the market conditions that you described um, about what's what's changed that's allowing the wafer manufacturers to manufacture wafers in larger sizes? And, you know, that's obviously kind of what's rolling downhill here. And I think a lot of it gets driven by the utility scale side of things as well, right? I mean, we as manufacturers are, you know, 75, 80% residential yourselves on the distribution side, probably a large portion residential. We still make up a very small overall net portion of the total PV installed, right? The utility side of things is still, uh, what's the US market, maybe 16 to 18 gigawatts of which 10, 11 plus are utility. Bigger is better in utility. And I think that drives a lot of it. And instead of wafer and ingot manufacturers having two or three different products, they want to try to standardize on a single one so that all of their plants can run the same feedstock and, and pushing in that direction is kind of forcing us on the residential and the, the commercial side of things to, to deal with that standardization. I don't believe that an M10 cell works in residential uh, unless you go back to a, a 54 cell, right? So that's certainly something that people are looking at is going to a 60 cell M10 really doesn't work. It's, it's much too big for the average North American uh, rooftop. Therefore, do you actually take a step back and start making a 54 cell M10? That allows the, the ingot and, and wafer manufacturers to standardize on a cell. It allows the manufacturers to standardize their equipment on a cell width, which impacts from the stringing in the front end, right through the lamination, right through the, the crimping in the back end. And it kind of creates a module that might be applicable to the residential and commercial landscape as well. So I think it's just the industry inevitably going towards the larger scale utility volumes and looking for efficiencies in, in scale. And do you think that we're going to, do you think MPAN is where we're going to stop or do you think we're going to keep going? Will there be a point where the, it's not worth getting bigger? 
What, what's what's your idea there? Yeah, I think there, there is already an M12 product um, that is not readily available today, but it certainly is in development and, and is being used in some larger utility scale uh, situations. The we collectively in, in residential and, and commercial, it gets too big. So uh, one of the major implications to go larger cell is that your your ISC, your, your incoming current increases. So M6 really pushed right off the bat, pushed the uh, microinverters and, and optimizer manufacturers over a limit that they weren't comfortable with, right? Current is cost in, in power electronics. So as soon as you push over 11, 11 and a half amps, you really take a swing into a totally different set of, of electronics uh, and current carrying capacity. So M6 already pushed that envelope. They don't have residential applications that handle M10 cell product today. So again, you're going to a larger cell. The cell count may stay the same, but your ISC pops up to 14 or 15 amps. That becomes an issue with almost, I believe, I'm not sure if Enphase is the the 8 series has some high end that actually handles that uh, that ISC. But certainly it it requires a total redesign of, of the current capacity of those devices. So is bigger better in utility and can it go further? I believe so. But in the residential and commercial space, I think we're already really seeing the limit, the threshold of the physical footprint size of, of the module and also the compatibility with, with power electronics uh, on the market, which in North America represents 90 plus percent of all residential. And you guys might have to help me, 60, 70 percent of commercial rooftop, at least major, major portions of it. Not the same in Europe, not the same in, in Asia and other markets. But in North America, that you know, MLPE uh, compatibility drives everything. And this is yeah. a major implication of getting to larger cells here. So let's talk, let's, uh, let's talk about other implications of these, uh, these larger modules. Other than module level electronics, um, what about other components in the system? Yeah, and certainly footprint size impacts as well, the, the racking necessary for a given system. So, you know, modules used to be, and I'm going to talk in Canadian terms here, metric, but, uh, you know, 900 to, to 1,000 millimeters. And that was kind of a standard. And you would run, you know, your, your average residential system would be 12 to 15 modules wide in, in landscape orientation. You'd get two rows, you get your seven to nine kilowatts, perfect, off to the races. By, by stretching the width, right? So uh, when you increase cell size, it's done typically in a square. It's it's 160 millimeters square, 170 millimeters square. It, it grows in both directions. So by going to 60 cell, you certainly increase the length, which might not be an implication or have any implications to to racking. But in increasing in width, all of a sudden for that same 360, 370 watts, you actually require an extra two or three inches of rail. And now you get to you know maybe in rail coming in 12 foot lengths, 14 foot lengths. You don't fit the same number. It doesn't fit with a certain number of modules to a certain length of rail. Therefore, you add splicing. You start uh, having to cut on every single system because the average residential house is X width. And I used to be able to do it perfectly with two 12-foot rails. Now I can't. Now I've got to do it with you know different lengths and, and splicing and getting continuity between your, your rail portions adds additional components, additional pieces to the install. So on one hand, stretching length can get you a better wattage per per rail ratio. But as soon as you stretch the width, you actually decrease. So depending on which way, so 66 cell uh, pushing length without width actually gets you possibly a, a better ratio of, of wattage to cost and racking. But as soon as you go to larger cells, stretching width as well, now you actually are decreasing your or wattage to rail width or ratio. Um, so it, it can go either which way. I think 66 cell is, is really a short 
term solution uh, to a longer term problem. So I believe ultimately going to the larger cell will be the direction most take and the racking industry is certainly impacted by that for sure. Yeah. So we're seeing module manufacturers incorporating larger cells, increasing their their footprint in other ways. Are there other technological changes that you're seeing on the horizon or out in the field increasingly with folks that are trying to improve the module output? Uh, certainly, there, there's ongoing research and development. Um, there always has been. I mean, we continue to, there's kind of a baby steps and, and, and maybe a bit of a larger step format. So the baby steps I mean, R&D teams globally are just constantly tweaking little factors, uh, the cell-to-cell spacing, cell-to-edge spacing, playing with, uh, you know, it used to be three bus bar, two bus bar, three bus bar, four, five, six, seven. Now you've got nine, now you've got 12, and you're basically just, you're you're reducing the thickness of of the busing, uh, but adding more to it. So you're, in theory, hopefully reducing resistance in the circuit and adding additional uh, current flow path within the module. There's all sorts of micro ways, let's say, to, to try to eke out just fractions of a percent, but mm-hmm. fractions of a percent in, in, in overall terms can yield considerable energy gains over, you know, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever the, the lifespan of the project is. And then, you know, three, four years ago, you started to see a shift to some slightly different cell and topology uh, architectures within modules. So really still, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but maybe 80, 90% of, of the market is, is a standard mono perk. Uh, cell heterojunction cells combining a, a, a two different technologies to try to yield better efficiencies within within the same general footprint is more of a, a technological jump than just those kind of micro baby steps that we could make by tweaking small variables here and there. Um, so so there's certainly some some good companies in the industry today using heterojunction cells, which is just simply getting a higher efficiency instead of tweaking the the parameters of the module. So the cell to module loss is generally a term that uh, is is used often. Is you know if you have a 22% efficient cell, by the time you encapsulate, laminate, and and get it to to flash test at the end of your line, you've lost one, two, three percent, four percent, depending on the technology from that original cell. By having a higher efficiency cell then you start with maybe it's 22.3%. And, and hence, those same mod- cell-to-module losses yield a better efficiency of the module. So heterojunction is one of those. The ability to go to a back-contact architecture versus front-contact. So heterojunction cells still run the busing and the stringing across the front of the module, carry the current to the top of the, the module, to the junction box via the front contacts. Back-contact is simply taking that that current conveying network um, and putting it to the back of the module behind the cells. So there's a few different ways of doing that as well. And there's a handful of companies in the market, uh, including Silfab today, that, that make a back contact technology. That does a few things. One, it reduces uh, you know, shading from the front of the module. It's They're fairly narrow, but it still does increase the overall receiving square footage of, of um, front side contact. The second is that it, it adds to the efficiency of the module by reducing resistance. Typically, you're having uh, a better circuitry system on the back side of things. There's also N-type cells that people use with a back contact technology as well. So there's kind of there's the, the, the baby steps that, uh, that take monoperk and, and eke out bits and pieces here. Um, and then there's also jumping to uh, a totally different technology. And that generally leads to, in most cases, and shameless self-promotion, but 
we feel we found one of the better ways to to jump on the technological sides to a higher efficiency without actually having to step to a different cell. So we use a monoperc cell with what's called metal wrap through. So it's a conductive back sheet. There's a copper layer in the back sheet that conveys the current from the cells to the junction box, similar to what a front contact module would do, but in the back uh, in the back sheet, therefore reducing the shade on the front, reducing the resistance, uh, the resistance in the circuit, et cetera, allowing us to, to decrease the cell-to-cell spacing, decrease the cell-to-edge spacing, all of those things that increase the density of the module without having to jump to an HJT cell, an N-type cell, something that has a considerable price jump, we're able to use a very similar cell efficiency with monoperc, but then get the efficiencies by going to that back contact technology, the metal wrap through technology. And that was, is what our Silfab Elite product is today made out of our, one of our Washington facilities. That is, that's so cool. And, you know, we, we're definitely seeing a bit of a diversification in terms of the technologies being applied to cells in order to enable manufacturers to eke out a few more watts, you know, from similar wafer and, and cell technology or similar wafer technologies, I should say. So tell us more about that, uh, the, the metal wrap through. What, what other advantages do you, do you get from that, that copper in the back sheet? Yeah, so it does a, a handful of things. I mean, getting into the nitty gritty a little bit, but when you, when you front do front contact on the module, you're using high temperature soldering to the front of a cell and a cell is 200 nanometers, 180 nanometers, 220 nanometers, very, very thin. If you've ever held a, a solar cell and actually, you know, shake it, I mean, it shatters into a million pieces. So the equipment, the front end of, of, a, of a production line, it's, it's obviously very well calibrated to handle these pressures and these temperatures, but you are soldering onto the front of a very, very thin uh, wafer of, of polysilicon. Going to a back contact eliminates all of that and you're just laying it up on top of a conductive back sheet. So as far as long-term robustness, as, as far as the rigidity of, of a module and uh, you know, the lack of micro cracks. So if you have even the tiniest little bit of pressure that has caused the slightest bit of a crack on a front contact module, then heat thaw, um, you know, the, the cycling process, the thermal cycling process can cause those cells to spiderweb, those cracks slowly spiderweb with time. If you never have that front pressure from, from soldering, then ultimately you've, you've rid yourself of that potential down the road. So a much more robust module as far as kind of the structural integrity on that same kind of temperature related topic line, having a conductive backsheet, having a ability to dissipate heat more effectively, you know, there's a temperature coefficient with PV production. The hotter a cell gets, the hotter a module gets, the less efficient it is, the less module power it produces. So our back contact modules, that metal wrap through module is able to, there's a bunch of testing that we can kind of send out, but uh, it, it operates three to four degrees cooler than a conventional perk front contact module. So fairly simple math, take, take the temperature coefficient of a module and multiply it by three or four degrees. It's not, uh, it's not making a millionaire overnight, but these modules just sit, you know, decade after decade producing power. And, you know, on top of a black asphalt roof in, in Arizona in the summer is, is, a, is a really hot uh, environment. So any heat dissipation help you can get is better for just baseline production long term. And uh, so we're, we're seeing quite consistently that uh, that back contact technology is able to to operate at a much cooler temperature and therefore just generate better better heat over time better time sorry cool so one other thing that that i've been noticing is is this trend toward cutting cells like we have half cut cells we have third cut cells now on on some things like what's going on there how is that 
what's the advantage? Yeah, so the ability, uh, a cell, if if incoming light hits the cell at one end and it's it's you know positive and negative uh, polarity on a, on a cell and it's got to travel, the current's got to travel throughout a cell, you have resistance within that circuit, right? By cutting a cell in half, you half the resistance, right? So having resistance in the circuit lowers the efficiency of the module, hence lower production values. By half cutting, you half that resistance. Again, not changing things you know, in orders of magnitude overnight, but it is eking out. So maybe a module that if you ran full cells and it got you 360 watts, uh, a half cut module with that exact same polysilicon, just laser cut down the middle of every single cell would get you somewhere around 370, 375 watts. So it does grab you the next power class in a lot of cases. So um, it is certainly used to get better efficiencies. Uh, third cut is is the exact same thing. Um, I think what the industry still is is really trying to figure out is with the cut, I mean, ingot and wafer manufacturers are not going to start producing, right? I've told you, they are trying to get as large as they possibly can. So they certainly are not going to start producing, uh, you know, fifth cut cells for us so that we can start to reduce resistance. So it, it is on the, the cell manufacturer or the uh, module manufacturer's plate to actually perform that that cell cutting. So the more times you manipulate, the more times that you play and cut and, and move a smaller a smaller cell, it certainly does add to the potential risk. So half-cut cells have been around forever. They've been proven, invented, and, and run through all third-party accredited laboratories and, and come out with, with you know, shining colors on the far side. Um, Third-cut third cells are certainly now starting to have more prevalence. But I think as you, you know, go into fourth-cut and fifth-cut, I think you, you really start to play with a cost-benefit analysis. Sure, you're now cutting the, the, the cell resistance by a fifth, but you've now processed that cell a lot. You've handled it a lot. You're you're creating a lot more points of, of soldering contact. And not to mention, you still have to have, in most modules, some, some are getting to kind of zero gap. So your cells are very, very close together. There still generally has to be a gap between each cell. So now as you cut all of those cells into a tiny, thin little uh, bunch of pieces, and you have to still maintain a slight gap between each cell, you start to lose efficiency in the density of the uh, the module overall. And so some have gone to a shingling impact uh, or topology where you take a lot of very thin cut cells and start to actually overlap them slightly. So again, a, a slightly different way, but now you use an adhesive to actually adhere these cells together. And, and that adhesive hasn't been really vetted in the industry for, for a very long time um, overall. So I think there's as with any new emerging technology, there is certainly huge potential in all of them, um, but most of them don't have more than four or five, six, seven, eight years of, of field testing empirical data to really rely upon, other than the tried, tested, and true, uh, you know, polysil- poly- monoperc front contact modules. So I think it's, uh, you know, choosing the right technology that's been vetted for, for a certain amount of time by a certain number of groups and a certain number of climates and a certain number of third parties and, and choosing the technology that you're comfortable with from there. Yeah, that kind of brings us around to what what is Solfab's approach to some of these changes that we're seeing introduced in, in various, you know, cell technology options and so forth. Uh, we've got your metal wrap through technology available on the market right now. In, in what other ways um, is, is Solfab um, responding to some of these changes? I think... Attempting to maintain consistency for as long as possible would be the ultimate goal. We've we've always attempted to to really minimize our skew count. Um, so by only jumping ten watt power classes, right? You'll never find a a three thirty, a three thirty five, a three forty, three forty five. We've always kind of skipped ten watt power classes. We've always tried to really limit the number of products we have in the market at any set point. 
it, it, it aids in our manufacturing efficiencies uh, and our supply chain. It aids in, in our distributors' warehouses and that you're not host, hosting a, a slew of different SKUs. And it also helps downstream with installers that you know they sell a project today. They might not install it for 45 days, 60 days, 75, 90 days. And if technologies are changing and SKUs are changing quite quickly, uh, ultimately you sold something that's no longer available. So priority number one is, is maintaining consistency for as long as you can. The issue with that is uh, your, your raw material supply is changing quite quickly. So cell, cell size, cell technology um, is changing. And at some points you do have your, your hand kind of forced on you, but certainly trying to maintain a certain technology for a certain period of time and then giving really long heads up to our distribution and installation partners. So uh, we do everything we can as long as, you know, our roadmap is, is locked in six, nine, 12 months ahead, then we will convey as much of that as we are certain with to all of our downstream partners so that those, those changes in, in your business models can, can be made, right? So, you know, you, you want to stay on the, on the, the leading edge without being on the maybe bleeding edge. Um, you don't want to go to market with that technology that, that ultimately proves to be poor. I mean, Blu-ray didn't last very long and uh, you don't want to go to market with, uh, with Blu-ray. Uh, you also don't get, want to get stuck with a, a huge supply of, of typewriter ribbon, right? It's just, you don't want to be on either end of that. And, and certainly Silfab has done a pretty good job of staying there and, and making sure that we use well-vetted technologies, not right when they're launched, but after they've been proven for a while, but then also don't, don't stick to it for too long. There is a certain amount of change that uh, you, you need to make in the solar space. It, it is evolving very quickly. Um, it's called the solar coaster for a reason. Nothing stays similar for very long, whether it's Pricing, whether it's technologies, uh, whether it's the political environment uh, that we seem to be playing with in today, but see, it's a balance of consistency for our our partners' sanities, and and also, but staying ahead on the R and D side so that you don't get caught in a pure play price battle, which is is not attractive for uh, a group like Silfab. So, kind of a happy medium in between there with the limited SKU count and uh, a technology that still allows us to differentiate from our major competitors. Yeah, I know that so much of that speaks to what we love about working with and representing Sulfab. You know, it's it's a brand that's really built a name for itself, not only on North American manufacturing, but also in terms of making sure that the, the market can really rely on a, a specific product for enough time that customers have time to make the transitions that they need to make in preparation for whatever updates are going to be happening. So we love your guys's method of communicating about change and keeping everyone on the same page as you, you know, work through those um, various technological adoptions that, that you do. do best. I think yeah. something we have a, a leg up and so maybe it's a, it's an unfair hand or an unfair advantage, but manufacturing everything here means, I mean, I, I head up the sales team and sit with our product team, right? They don't make decisions without the input from every single one of our sales team members. Um, which is a, is a huge advantage because the sales team are the ones that are out on the road talking to installers, talking to distributors, understanding where the market trends are going and which ones are, are pushing the envelope of, of compatibility issues, uh, whether it's roof size, whether it's MLPE compatibility, et cetera, um, and, and efficiencies in cost and installation. You know, we get to help dictate what product is built and ultimately when it gets built. And so we have more information about, you know, the changes that are being made, the roadmap, the timing, et cetera, than almost anyone else. And uh, sometimes 
it's a lot of information that you don't necessarily want if it keeps you up at night, but it certainly helps us in, in providing more of that information to our partners and making sure that they can make the informed decisions versus finding out tomorrow that uh, you've got two gigawatts of uh, or two megawatts of products sold and that product's no longer available. So is there any other news that uh, we should be looking out for from SOFAB? Yeah, a, a big step on our behalf. I think we've we've always been based here and, and uh, greater than a decade now manufacturing, right from the development through the manufacturing, through the sales service support on North American soil between the Canadian and, and U.S. facilities. And we've taken another huge step towards expanding that, that U.S. footprint in manufacturing capacity. So we recently signed uh, a large investment with a, a firm to build out the remainder of the third manufacturing facility that we just uh, took possession of earlier in in 2021. So that would uh, that alone would double our U.S. manufacturing capacity and, and lead to hundreds of additional jobs in the U.S. That investment also allows us to build out a fourth manufacturing facility on U.S. soil as well. So all told, I mean, that, that amount of capacity would, would make us the largest uh, domestic manufacturer out there with, with far greater control over their, their total supply chain and, and R&D and manufacturing base you know, here where we do business, um, you know, designing it and, and building it for the elements and, and the landscape that, that we do business in, which is here in North America from you know, Canada to Panama, basically. Pretty big step for us. And uh, we're excited. We're off to a run and, and hiring a lot. And uh, it takes you a while to, to spend that many uh, millions, but we are uh, citing new, new facilities and, and hiring new people every day and uh, happy to be able to provide more product for the, uh, the North American homeowner. Congratulations. That's great news. Thanks. Yeah. So excited to see an ever-increasing footprint in module manufacturing production uh, here in the United States. So glad to see you all taking that step. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad about the the partnership that we have with Silfab. Ryan is, is a wealth of information and really happy that he was able to join us and, you know, tell us more about the, the changes that they have. Yeah. It's so cool to see how fast that team has been able to just grow their market share and, you know, find, find a part of the market that just loves their modules, can't get enough. You know, we've seen tremendous growth with Silfab. Anybody interested in buying Silfab from us should be working with their Baywa sales rep to make sure that they can get allocation because um, I know that they're just kind of flying off the shelves right now. That's um, absolutely true. Yeah. Well, Kate, uh, this kind of brings us to a sad moment. We're coming to the end of this last Solar Tech Talk with with you as co-host. We'll certainly look forward to having you back on to guest host once you get settled in. I, I, I love knowing that you'll still be in the solar industry and I'm sure our paths will be crossing, but I'm going to miss working with you day to day. And you leave some really big shoes to fill. Absolutely. You're doing kind of a round of guest hosts to allow others on the team and uh, within the industry to have a voice on Solar Tech Talk as we work to find a more permanent co-host. But I, I know that I can speak for basically everyone on the Baywa team, but especially everyone on the Solar Tech Talk production team and myself when I say we'll miss you and uh, you know look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks. Thanks so much, Aaron. Doing Solar Tech Talk has really been the highlight of my time here at Baywa. It's It's been such a fun show to put together and, and co-host with you. And I'm, I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss the whole Tech Talk team and uh, really, really appreciate just having this experience with y'all. I, I look forward to, to coming back and, and being a guest on the show in the future as, as I settle in. 